Escape Pod 144 February 7th, 2008 Today's story, Friction, by Will McIntosh Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely. Due to personal circumstances, I'm obliged to skip the usual intro. But we have a strong and unusually philosophical story for you this week. We're proud to present Friction by Will McIntosh. Professor McIntosh lives in Georgia. By day, he teaches in the psychology department at Georgia Southern University. He sold stories to Asimov's, Interzone, Strange Horizons, and many other top-shelf publications. This story first appeared in the Irish SF magazine Albedo One, where it was voted best of issue. So sit still while you listen. Don't wear yourself out. It's story time. Friction by Will McIntosh Gruen woke at sunrise, reclasped his robe with one deft twist, and began the next row of vertical text on the wall. He could read up to nine rows of text without moving his head or eyes, shifting his awareness instead of his gaze in a technique he'd perfected early in his quest to read the complete works of the 137 masters. The technique kept movement, and the resulting wear, to a minimum. Thus would he succeed where many others had failed. No one in memory had succeeded in reading the complete works of the masters. All who'd attempted it had worn out before finishing. Gruen was on the sixty-first master, and while his wisdom had grown steadily, he had worn very little. He was incredibly well-preserved. The palms of his three-fingered hands still sported the deep, swirling ridges that had worn to nothing in most people before they'd lived thirty years. Indeed, all of the myriad folds and ridges in his thick maroon skin were, for the most part, intact. His eyes were still housed in tight sockets, surrounded by thickly ridged cheeks. Besides the feet, the eyes were the greatest point of weakness for those who aspired to read the works of the masters. Ceaseless up-and-down eye movement caused the sockets to wear out, and eventually the reader's eyes fell out. At that point, they were forced to trace the carved words with their fingers. Friction quickly took its toll on the hands. Readers rarely made it through one master's teachings this way before their hands were ground to the wrist, and they were finished. At midday, a pilgrim brought Gruen food offerings, moist, sweet meal bread, one of Gruen's favorites. He opened his mouth, and the pilgrim fed him after first chewing the meal bread to an easy-to-swallow paste. He didn't waste movement acknowledging the pilgrim's kindness. Pilgrims expected no thanks, and would be horrified if Gruen incurred friction simply to speak or nod thanks. As he ate, he read. The teachings of the 65th Master were rich and far-ranging. He drank in the knowledge, and his soul sang. Finishing the ninth and final line in his field of vision, he took one well-practiced step to the right, which left him centered on the next nine lines. He had taken steps of the exact same width a thousand thousand times before, up and down hills, through towns, along lakes and seas, through the center of raging battles. He would take as many more before he was through, if he finished. Where on the soles of his feet was the greatest threat? The bottoms of his feet were worn smooth, with perhaps thirty percent loss through friction at the heel, but he believed he had enough foot remaining to finish. When the shadow of his shoulder reached the base of the wall, he took his daily break, 
turning and admiring the landscape and the crimson setting sun that all day was at his back. It was a needless luxury, but he believed it was worth the cost. He'd been on the great desert plain for four years now, but still he reveled in the swirling red sands, the majestic gripes circling in the sky, the soft winds and timeless silence. The remainder of the wall hugged the edge of this massive plain, and that was fine with Gruen. There was a dot on the horizon to the east. It hadn't been there yesterday. Gruen briefly wondered what it might be, then put it out of his mind. Refreshed, he returned to his reading. He was getting to the sixty-fifth master's later years, probably not long before the master had worn down and stopped recording his knowledge. Much of these later writings were concerned with the nature of thought. The sixty-fifth master wondered if thought produced friction, which would explain why the deeply worn and stumped were so often addled as well. Most people thought the terrible pain of deep wear was what addled the deeply worn. But some people maintained sharp minds even after their bodies wore down. The sixty-fifth master speculated that this was because they had learned to think thoughts of truth and harmony, and that such thoughts were better lubricated. Gruen was in awe of this master's enlightened insights. Often he stopped reading to think about a particularly provocative idea. The light was fading. Gruen finished reading one last line of text, straining to make out the carved words as darkness turned wisdom wall into a featureless winding black sentinel that narrowed to thin ribbons before disappearing off the edges of his peripheral vision. He unfastened the clasp of his robe and let it drop to the dusty red ground. He lay on the robe, flat on his back, arms at his sides, and closed his eyes. Sleep came quickly, his mind as silent as a pond on a windless day. It was a scyther, heading north. Gruen could make out none of the scyther's features beyond its tubular shape. It was probably heading toward the feast on what its kind called the Plains of Larger Prey. Gruen turned and continued reading. The scyther had altered its path, veering slightly north, as if it were heading toward Gruen. Likely that was not its intent. Scythers and Gruen's kind had little to say to each other. They got along fine because neither had anything the other wanted. As days passed, the Scyther continued to approach, veering unerringly toward Gruen. Gruen turned to take his break and found the Scyther waiting just a few steps away from him. It was small, as Scythers go, reaching not quite to Gruen's waist. It was blue-gray, an oblong mound of slimy flesh with two violet eyes on the ends of stalks. It spoke to Gruen moving its stalks in a centuries-old sign language the two species used when they had something to say to each other. Gruen, who was very learned, knew the language fluently. The nineteenth master, especially, had discussed Scythers at some length. The Scyther told Gruen a tale. My daughter fell down a ravine and died as she was first emerging from the burrow where she was born and suckled. This is unspeakable horror. Now she has never existed— because none will ever taste her trail. None will know her story. The Scyther's utter despair was evident. It waited expectantly for some reply. To the average person, the gravity of the story would likely be lost, but Gruen understood. A Scyther's scent history, which contained that of his ancestors, was the core of his being. In coming across another Scyther's trail, they tasted that Scyther's history. Not only did this provide useful information for breeding and dominance hierarchies, but to Scythers it provided immortality. 
Their essence lived on in those who had tasted their trail. A Scyther who died before it had traveled on the plain left no trail for others to taste, so it cannot be remembered, so it never existed. But Gruen didn't understand how this story was relevant to him. He didn't want to submit himself to friction to ask the Scyther why he would tell him this story, so he turned and continued reading. Six lines later, the Scyther slid into his field of vision and kept sliding until it was facing him, blocking the bottom quarter of the wall. Annoyed, but left with little choice, Gruen asked the Scyther what business this was of Gruen's. I have an idea to save my child from non-existence. I pushed her body into a black pool. Nothing lives in a black pool, and nothing can decompose in one. I ask you to come with me to retrieve the body, and use your hands to fasten my child to me, so that I can drag her across the plain, thus leaving her trail for others to taste. Gruen was stunned. He had never heard of a Scyther making such a request. He was also annoyed. The Scyther was interrupting his reading. He lifted his hand, used the two outside fingers to reply. Why did you come to ask me of all my kind? You are the only one of you a kind, moving slowly enough for me to catch. Gruen was forced to incur the friction necessary to explain that he was reading the complete works of the 137 masters, and thus could not afford to wear the bottom of his feet helping Scythers, no matter how noble the cause. Your feet will not wear out. I will carry you on my back, the Scyther said. It is an unthinkable fate. The tragedy will echo in the trail of my ancestors for all time. Now Gruen was losing patience. Standing as still as a desert stone, he tried to think how he could get the Scyther to go away. If you help me, afterward I will carry you along the wall for ten years, the Scyther said. The word shocked Gruen. Ten years closer to his goal without any footwear? The Scyther could even turn around once a day to face the setting sun when it was time for Gruen's evening break. No, it was absurd. Riding on the back of a Scyther? He told the Scyther it was absurd, and waited for the Scyther to move, but it stayed hunched in front of the wall. Finally, Gruen turned and faced the desert. Scythers were slow creatures, but they weren't accustomed to inaction as Gruen was. This one would grow tired and leave if Gruen ignored him. Staring straight ahead, he admired the sun. It was a brilliant yellow. He had not seen it like this in years. So high in the sky. So powerful. The Scyther crawled to the edge of his vision and continued until he was facing Gruen across three paces of crimson desert sand. Help me. I'll do anything, he said. Do you even know if a dead Scyther leaves a trail when pulled across the sands? A trail can be tasted on a Scyther's dead body for some time. There is no reason to believe it would not leave a trail if dragged. The persistent little Scyther had certainly thought this through. Still, I can't help you, Gruen replied. At least he'd gotten the Scyther to move away from the wall. He turned and continued reading. To make up for the movement he'd been forced to undertake, he decided he wouldn't turn to face the setting sun this evening. The Scyther slid back into his field of vision until he was again blocking the bottom of the wall. Twelve years, he said. Twelve years. It was perhaps one-tenth of a Scyther's lifetime. Gruen was tempted. What would the Masters do? The Twenty-Ninth Master, 
the great mathematician Oxkin, would quantify the factors and see if the equation summed greater than zero. Gruen calculated the saved friction, subtracted the potential of undermining the dignity of his position, estimated the value of helping another creature, and added that as well. As he sought factors to include, it occurred to Gruen that while he rode the Scyther, he would get to spend all of his time looking at the desert. He imagined watching glints skitter across his path, leaving trails that looked like fingers dragged through the sand. He could watch slate-gray clouds massing in the distance as a storm mustered, and watch the sun loop the sky slowly from end to end. He was unsure how much numerical value to give this, but saw that the equation summed to a number far greater than zero. All right, he said. I'll accompany you. The Scyther began a long litany of gratitude, but Gruen, impatient to be done with the task, mounted the Scyther and turned his face to look at the sun. The Scyther's skin was slippery and sticky at the same time. It began to slide. The movement was so slow and even that Gruen felt as if he weren't moving at all. It took nearly fifty of Gruen's in-breaths and out-breaths for the Scyther to move one body length. No matter, as long as he was not incurring friction, time did not matter. "'My name is Western,' the Scyther said. Gruen did not reply. The next day, a pilgrim spotted Gruen. Gruen opened his mouth, and the pilgrim, astonished to find him sitting on a Scyther, fed him nonetheless. It was Shadow Tree Root Stew, spiced with white flame. The pilgrim had to take only two steps while feeding him, because of Western's slow pace. Occasionally Western's pace slowed even more, as it came upon a trillet in the sand and paused to grasp it and suck the juices out of it. Whatever the pace, Gruen drank in the slowly shifting scenery, relishing the play of shadow and light on the sand. One day, two of Gruen's kind who were movers spotted him and came to taunt him for the inexplicable thing he was doing, and for being a non-mover more generally. They laughed at him as he sat motionless on the Scyther. "'You're as dead as a heap of the red sand your pet slides upon,' one of them taunted. They jumped about, reveling in the freedom of their movement, rolling, dancing, spinning like wheels on the sands, moving so violently that here and there they exposed spots of black undersand. Gruen did not speak, did not acknowledge them, though his thoughts swirled, perhaps causing friction, if the 65th Master's hypothesis was correct. You won't be laughing soon when your hands and feet are nubs and you crawl along the ground in agony, looking for grubs until you're only a stump, he thought. He did not waste movement on them. Eventually they went away, running, hopping, and laughing. What did they say to you? Western asked some time later. That I was no different from a lump of sand because I choose not to move, Gruen answered reluctantly. It was interesting that Scyther's eyes were on the ends of stalks. It meant they could see in all directions at once. Gruen wondered what that looked like. What a strange thing to say. They are as much the sand as you. More so, because they move so much. Did you point that out to them? I don't understand your point, Gruen said. That they make the sand as much as you do. That's my point, Western said. Scythers were not very bright. Did Scythers think that Gruen's kind were magicians, or gods, making the very earth? Gruen considered explaining that the sands had existed since the beginning of time, but let the matter drop. 
The black pool was a savage, swirling mass of water as black as a starless night sky. It was beautiful and terrifying. Rather than the crashing, wet sound made by most bodies of water, the pool emitted a restless howling. It seemed to Gruen that the air itself grew darker as they approached it. When they came to the edge, Western showed Gruen the sheltered eddy where he had stashed the body of his daughter, whose name was Evening. Gruen knelt and fished in the black water, uneasy at the sight of his arm disappearing into the pool as if prematurely stumped, dreading the inevitable contact with the infant Sither's plump corpse. But the contact didn't come. The body wasn't there. Rains must have raised the water level and washed her into the heart of the pool, Gruen surmised. You must wade into the pool, Western said. She's in there. Please. Gruen eyed the rushing whirlpool, the jagged rocks jutting from the water. He seated himself on the scyther. Take me back. Our agreement is void, he said. Fifteen years. Take me back, Gruen repeated. I'll carry you along the wall for the rest of my life. Please, save my daughter's memory. Take me back. The Sither didn't answer, just sat there beneath Gruen, its stalks pointing straight in the air. Finally, the stalks moved. No. No amount of arguing, threatening, or logic moved the Sither. In the end, Gruen had no choice. He waded into the thick black water. The bottom was mud that sucked at Gruen's feet. Occasionally he stumbled on rough stones that sawed at his feet with a sharpness that made him dizzy. Two dozen paces in, Gruen paused to rest. The water rushed against his thighs. He had to lean into the current to avoid being pulled under. He looked out across the pool. At its center, the water formed a dark, flickering eye. The eye seemed to wink. Gruen stepped closer, strained to see the eye more clearly. His foot landed upon a wide, flat rock and slipped. The current tore his foot away. Arms flailing, he hit the water with a crash, felt himself carried away. He scrabbled for purchase, felt his palms and knees rub sickeningly against stone. He managed to lift his head out of the shallow water long enough to steal a breath, then was twisted back under. The water tasted of smoke and salt. Realizing he couldn't fight the current, he focused on getting his face above the water. Coughing and gasping, he spun faster with each revolution, his view alternating between blue sky and blackness. He was spinning at a dizzying pace when suddenly the crushing force of the water eased and Gruen felt something bouncing repeatedly off of him. He was in the eye of the pool, and it was the body of Western's daughter bouncing against him. Instinctively, Gruen wrapped his arms around the Sither. The body was buoyant, and though it stunk of carrion, Gruen clung to it. When he had recovered somewhat, he planted his feet on the bottom and stopped himself from spinning. Slowly, carefully, he pushed the infant Sither into the rushing current. He allowed the current to steer him, realizing he could not withstand it, but churned his feet, moving in a circle but also outward toward the shore. Finally, Gruen dragged the corpse onto the barren, sandy shore and collapsed. He lay gasping for breath, still feeling the grinding scrape of stone against his body. He turned his head and vomited black water onto the russet sand, closed his eyes, and lost consciousness. When he woke, Western stood over him, his stalks pointing down so his eyes were as close to Gruen as they could reach. "'Are you all right?' he asked. Gruen closed his eyes and went back to sleep.
Western carried both Gruen and the body of Evening until they located a patch of green vine. Suffering yet more friction, Gruen pulled a length of vine free of the twisting mass and lashed it around Evening's tiny body. He tied the other end to one of Western's stalks. They set out across the desert plain. It was a grisly sight. Evening's body was a jet-black lump, silver eye stalks plastered flat to the body, the skin drying quickly and becoming scaly. But Western was overjoyed. "'I owe you everything,' the Sither said as they slid across the sand, heading toward the wall. "'I will carry you along the wall until I tip, so that your sacrifice does not cost you what is most important to you.' Groen hoped so, because he didn't think he'd be able to finish reading the wall after the wear his hands and feet had suffered in the pool. His kind was made for softness—sand and straw and meal bread, not sharp stones. Only the ancient builders of the wall, and the etchers, inflicted the friction of stone upon themselves, sacrificing all so there could be knowledge. Groen looked at his feet. They were pitted and slashed. Yet, somehow, he could not maintain his anger toward the Sither. It evaporated in the face of Western's simple joy at having saved his daughter from having never existed. After two hundred days crossing the plain, Western decided Evening's trail was sufficiently long and told Gruen to untie the vine and set her free. Neither he nor Western looked back. For Western, her body meant little now that her trail was spread across the plain. Gruen didn't want to incur the friction it would take to look back. Western must have followed his own trail back because he knew the exact spot where he'd first met Gruen and slid up to the wall at that spot so Gruen could continue reading. They worked out a system where Gruen would inhale a bit more deeply when he was ready to move to the next nine lines, thus minimizing friction. "'What is it like to move without cost? I can't even imagine,' Gruen asked one day. To his left, a spectacular outcropping of twisting, circling rock shot out of the sands toward the sky. Gruen admired the dazzling azure, cyan, and dark sea-green rock. "'My life is measured by sunrise and sunset, by movement. Only it's the movement of the sun rather than my limbs. In some ways that's worse, because I can't control the movement of the sun. You can choose the length of your life. The sun carries mine, and it never stops.' Gruen thought on this. He watched the sun inch across the sky. So the days went. Gruen read the wall, lost in the rapture of ever-expanding knowledge. The Sither never wavered. After twelve years, Gruen invited Western to take his leave. The Sither refused. "'If you have no children, your trail ends with you. Doesn't this bother you?' Western asked Gruen one day. They were facing the desert. A herd of plemots pounded across the plain halfway to the horizon. Their thin, whistling cries echoed off the sky. "'My life's work is more important than mating and family. Anyone can have children. No one has all the collected knowledge of our kind.' "'What will you do with it?' The thirty-third master discussed this question at length. "'What do you do with a beautiful sunset?' Western indicated amused doubt. I live my life under it. Gruen didn't bother to answer. It was impossible to explain his work to a Sither. I'm afraid you'll have to get down, 
Western said one afternoon during Gruen's reading of the 91st Master, 41 years after Gruen and the Scyther returned to the Wall. Startled, Gruen planted his feet in the sand on either side of Western and swung his leg free. "'Yes, it's time for you to return to your own kind. I agree,' Gruen said. "'No, I'm dying.' Gruen sighed. He'd known this day would come, but was surprised how sad and empty he felt. "'I'll sleep one more night. I would ask you to do me a service in the morning,' Western signed. "'Anything.' Tip me on my side, then continue with your work. That is our way. I'll die quickly once tipped. It will honor me to be tipped by you. You're a wise man. You taste the wall as we taste the trail, and as we taste your kind with every slide. It will be my honor to tip you, Gruen replied. Gruen unclasped his robe and sat next to Western. Watching the sun set into the red sand, he was reminded of what Western had once said about his life being measured by the sun's movement. He considered covering Western with his robe to comfort him, but the desert nights were always warm. Instead, he reached up and stroked Western's slick skin. By morning, a wide crimson streak stretched across Western's bluish skin. Gruen said goodbye to his friend, pressed both hands against his side, and tipped him. Western wriggled, his exposed black underside rippling. His soul worn from the loss, Gruen turned and continued reading. It felt strange to stand. Gruen took a step to the right, and pain shot up his leg. Reflexively, he jerked the leg back, and the pain subsided after a moment. Gingerly, he sat down and looked at the sole of his foot. Thin yellow roots sprouted along the right edge. His nerve endings were becoming exposed. Gruen sighed. Things would become more difficult now. The 110th Master had written quite a lot on the Wisdom Wall, and, in Gruen's opinion, had little to say. He took a step to the right, wobbling, his feet rounded and small, two burning knots of agony. The pain was constant now. It was difficult to concentrate. Gruen was in the middle of a long litany on the myriad ways that people waste themselves through pointless friction. He was on the subsection regarding speech. Speaking of the condition of your neighbor's feet is wasted friction. Speaking of the weather while outside is wasted friction. Speaking of your accomplishments is wasted friction. It was repetitive and irritating. The pilgrims who scribed for this master likely had strong opinions on the topic of pointless friction. It occurred to Gruen that he could skip the remainder of the 110th Master's writings. He would be losing nothing in the way of true knowledge. He thought of the small crowd gathered behind him, watching. Word was spreading that a scholar might succeed in reading the wall in its entirety. No, he must read it all. If not for himself, for the pilgrims. He read on, but he skimmed. When his shadow was a hand's length from the base of the wall, he turned toward the desert. His evening breaks were longer now than when he was young. The sight of the desert soothed the pain. Often, when he looked out over the plains, he thought of Western and their adventure. Early into the works of the 131st Master, Gruen fell down. Fine red sand sprayed from under the flat knots that were all that was left of his feet. He landed on his back with a flat thud and a cloud of red dust. 
as he lay there, looking up at a circle of concerned pilgrims, his feet feeling as if they were roasting over a fire. He realized he just incurred more friction in one heartbeat than an entire year of his younger days. Struggling to get up, he pressed his palm against the ground. Sand welled between his splayed fingers. He paused, scooped a handful of the fine red powder, opened his palm, watched the breeze carry it away until his palm was empty. The second time he fell, a pilgrim was there to catch him. When pilgrims were forced to catch him a dozen times a day, he realized he must now crawl. He balanced himself with his left hand only, seeing no reason to wear them both out. He looked down the wall. The end was not in sight. So much more to read. His left arm, a useless stump that ended in a dangling tangle of screaming nerves, grew and dragged himself along, steadying himself with his right hand, gasping with each excruciating step. He cursed the masters for their long-winded, sanctimonious, self-serving sermons. He especially cursed the 110th master, that myopic simpleton. A crowd of hundreds, set in a semicircle at a respectable distance from the great scholar, murmured sympathy each time he gasped in pain. They shouted encouragement. Most of the time, Gruen hated them. With each passing day, more doubts crept into his mind. Once he'd believed in the value of his quest with all his heart. Now he felt like an idiot who had wasted his life. His knees and shins were flaps dragging behind his torso. The pain was bad, though not as bad as he'd imagined. In fact, Gruen thought it was less intense than it had been in the last days that he'd had feet. It was hard to imagine he'd once had feet. Maybe he had just grown accustomed to pain. In any case, he had been feeling better. The writings of the 135th Master were, if not profound, at least intriguing. As he read, he felt as if he were surrounded by the other 134 Masters. They seemed to speak in his mind as he read, commenting on this latest Master's theses, debating amongst themselves. After half a day of reading, he turned to admire the desert. The throng of pilgrims shifted to allow him an unobstructed view. Out of the corner of his left eye, Gruen noticed something strange about the wall ahead. Not half a year's reading away, the wall became smooth and empty. A warm tingling rushed from Gruen's belly, outward to his stumps. Silent, the crowd of thousands watched Gruen drag himself to the last inscribed section of the wall. Gruen's left arm was ground nearly to the elbow. He trembled as he read the last line. Then he pulled himself around to face the crowd, his heart singing, his mind soaring. A roar went through the crowd. They would expect something of him now, he realized as their cries enveloped him. Some words of wisdom. He wondered how to choose some few words to be remembered, likely passed across the land from sea to sea. What words summarized the reading, the silence, the desert? He looked at the setting sun, half above the horizon, half below, as if waist-deep in the desert sand, and thought of what Western had said about the movement of the sun. At times the Sither had been so wise, at other times so primitive. Such is the comment about Gruen's kind making the sand. Gruen traced a deep line in the sand with his stumped arm, felt the familiar ring of pain— he admired the slash of rich black undersand that he had exposed. They are as much the sand as you, more so because they move so much. He drew a circle around the slash, 
His stump and the sand were so close in color that they almost looked connected in the fading light. A jolt ran through Gruen, as if a finger length had been raked off his body all at once. I taste your kind with every slide, Western had said. Barely aware of the muttering throng, Gruen looked back across the red sands, suddenly more alert than he had been in years. Was it possible? How many generations of his kind would it take to cover a world in red dust? Millions. Was his kind that ancient? The masters hadn't known. His ears rang. He was trembling and couldn't stop. The more he thought, the more obvious it seemed. One hundred thirty-seven masters had walked this plain, and not one had seen. But he had seen. "'Fetch me an etcher!' he cried. The pilgrims roared. After some rustling, a few ran toward a nearby village, eyes wide. An etcher arrived and stood at the wall. Deep canals were worn into the palms of her trembling hands. "'Etch it very large,' Gruen instructed. The etcher nodded. She raised the mallet and chisel, poised to record the words of the 138th master. "'Read the wall to know the master's wisdom.' Turn and look across the vast red sands, and meet the masters. The letters were each as big as Gruen's head. Gruen smiled as the pilgrims turned to look into the now dark desert, whispering among themselves, speculating on the meaning of Gruen's words. Eventually someone would figure it out. Gruen thought it better to be indirect. He had most enjoyed the writings of those masters who'd asked something of the reader. He asked a nearby pilgrim to unclasp his robe, and he lay down on it. The first few stars of the evening speckled the sky. Another pilgrim approached, stood over him, offering slippery treats. Much as Gruen loved them, he graciously refused. His work was done. Three days later, he died peacefully. Gripes ate his soft inside parts, and eventually the wind wore away what was left. And that was our story. I think you could take a lot of lessons from this piece. The lesson that resounded most for me is, if you're going to spend your entire life doing one thing, make sure it's the right thing for you to do. I'm going to keep letting you know about audio fiction that I love. I have a promo for you this week for a new podcast novel by my good friend Grey Dancer. I do have to warn you, the promo itself is generally safe for most audiences, but the novel is definitely for adults only and probably not all adults. Red, red, red! The common safe word had no effect on her as she drew a thin and wavy line just under his clavicle. It didn't hurt very much, but the unvarying invasion of his body by the blade was beginning to fray his calm. This, buddy boy, he thought, is headed nowhere you want to go. Red! She softly chuckled, looking with satisfaction at the lines of blood slowly wending their way down his pectoral. Red is the only color left to you, man. You are in Kali's hands now, and Kali has no safe words. Rita Seagrave, kinkmogul.com, says, I couldn't stop reading this book. 
great answer seduces us down an erotic rabbit hole to an alternate reality where we get to bounce between fantasies that are alternately safe and very dangerous. Get Nawashi at patiobooks.com. N-A-W-A-S-H-I. Nawashi, a novel of erotic magic. I'm going to skip feedback this week as well and hit you with a double next week. Meanwhile, Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please do tell a friend or blog about us. And if you'd like to help us support our authors, please consider donating via the PayPal link at our site. You can also check out our horror podcast, Pseudopod, at pseudopod.org and buy collectible archive CDs at poddisc.com. Our music is by permission of Dai Kaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. Our closing song, in a moment of pure self-indulgence, is Blue Jeans by George Robb, played with his long-standing prior permission. You can find more of George's brilliant music at geologicrecords.net. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes from Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter, who said, Wisdom too often never comes, and so one ought not to reject it merely because it comes too late. We'll be back again next week. In the meantime, have fun. I hate my hair. I hate my voice. But I've no choice. It's what my genes say. That make me this way. Yes, that's okay. I like my job. I like my wife. This is my life. I guess I will stay at least one more day. Uh-huh. I guess that's okay. But there are times when I wonder if what I do. Makes a difference to you who are listening. I've got no kids, I've got no progeny. My words are legacy. What shall we see? I do not drink, I do not drive, I won't survive unless I. Can play for free or for pay. Uh-huh. I guess that's okay. I always laugh. I always smile. I ran five miles just the other day. I still feel fat anyway. Uh-huh. Yes, that's okay. But there are times that I wonder how this will go. Either fast or real slow to the finish. Call it a hook. All I hear's a cliche. What I fear is the way I'll diminish. 